At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We eagerly wait with anticipation for the return of Jesus, when He will make everything wrong right. In a way, He's always reigned over all things, but on the other hand, His saving grace has received pushback and rejection from the evil of this world. Join us in our new series, Thy Kingdom Come, His Reign in Our Lives where we'll learn what the reign of Jesus truly means for us believers and how we, as the body of Christ, can continue spreading his name until he returns. Good to see you guys. Hopefully you found Mark chapter as we kind of unpack this uh, together. So um, it's uh, one of my most conflicted times of the year, uh, the fall season. And I'm not just conflicted because the weather is conflicted, although that seems to be the reality. Like this morning we were wrestling, like, do we turn the boiler on? Do we not? Because once you make that step, you can't go back. Like once you do that, it's like 90 degrees in here. So if you're freezing, sorry, we maybe made the wrong call in your mind. But I'm also conflicted for a different reason. I'm conflicted because I love the fall. Like, I love it. I love all the things about it. Give me the pumpkins. Give me the cider. Give me the trees. Give me the cool weather. Give me football. All of it. Fall is my favorite time of year. Anyone else with me? Love fall? Yeah, some of you. Great. Great. So I'm conflicted because on one hand, I love fall, but it also brings my least favorite holiday of the year, which is Halloween. I hate Halloween. You, you might not. That's fine. I'm just telling you for me, I hate it. And part of the reason I hate it is I hate being scared. Hate it. Spookiness, scary, jump scare, you name it. I cannot do it. If a suspenseful commercial comes on, I want to turn the channel. Like, that's how bad it is for me. Like, uh, a, a while back, my family and I were watching a movie. My nephew told us we had to watch this movie that he loved, and it was about, like, aliens and humans and some war and he's like we got to watch this together and like about 10 minutes into the movie I realized this movie has like quite a bit of jump scares and I'm like this is not my thing so I like do what any good dad does I pull out my cell phone and I start scrolling and not paying attention to the movie and my wife's like look at me like we're, we're trying to watch a movie here like as a family what are you doing get, like my kids I'm like I'm scared they're like get off your phone you're such a baby just watch the movie with us I'm like okay, fine, and I put down the phone, and I'm not exaggerating, you can ask my family, two seconds after I put my phone, this alien jumps out, and I'm like, bah, bah. I'm like, no, that's it, I'm done, I'm out, I went right back to the phone, like, I have no desire for any of that stuff, I hate it, but it seems like, for whatever reason, especially over the last several years, or maybe just in my lifetime, it seems like in this, this season, there's like this cultivation of the experience of fear, we're like, oh, let's watch these movies. Let's go to a haunted house. Let's, let's do these things that somehow we, we love this, like, in our culture, this, like, encounter with these, like, anxiety-inducing, fear-kind-of-ridden moments. Like, we, we actually seem to, like, embrace and enjoy the adrenaline rush suddenly of, of fear. And we kind of play at fear in this season. But genuine fear is actually something indifferently entirely. As I was thinking about it, I was like, man, why do we enjoy this? And I realized, well, part of the reason that many people, not me, but others, maybe some of you, are able to like enjoy a scary movie or something like that 
is because there's this ability to kind of control what you're encountering. So if the movie's too scary, turn the lights on, hit the fast forward button, check out the phone. If you go to the haunted whatever and it's too much, leave. Right? Like you have the ability to control that. But, but genuine fear, like genuine fearful moments are actually when we lose control. It's actually in the moments where we recognize that there are things that we encounter in life that are about beyond our ability to actually control them, that we don't have that ability. And that's when real fear kicks in. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their work, The Cry of the Soul, which explores the reality of human emotions in light of scripture, note, note this about the fear that many of us experience. They say different people fear different things with different levels of intensity. But all of us fear what we cannot control. Fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. When we are assaulted by a force that overwhelms us and compels us to face that we are helpless and out of control. Fear is provoked when the threat of danger, physical or relational, exposes our inability to preserve what we most deeply cherish. Fear is a reality of the human experience. And we all face it. In fact, the last time we looked at the passage that we're going to study this morning was almost three, a little over three years ago in March of 2020. And it was a time when we all experienced a massive amount of fear. It was right in the middle, in the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. We didn't know a lot what was going on and we didn't seem to have control over the reality and spread of this virus. There was kind of an unknown and lack of control. And in that season, we saw fear rise across our culture and across our hearts significantly. And that fear necessarily for some hasn't even gone away. But, but it's not just the pandemic that led to fear. In fact, all of us face moments regularly. We were encounter loss of control and fear creeps in. I had one of those this week. I'm sitting working at my desk and I get a text from my wife that says, hey, did you hear Farmington High School's on lockdown? And I'm like, what? Right? And I'm like going on Facebook, trying to get information, trying to figure out what's going on. Because in this day and age, when the school's on lockdown, like your thoughts immediately go worst case scenario. And I got two kids there. And I'm like, what is going on? And I'm, I'm trying to find from because I have no control. I don't know what's happening. Now, thankfully, it was just an error in their code system and, and everything was fine. But it was interesting, even in the midst of this I felt that this week, that loss of control, and immediately fear kicks in. And there's something in the reality of our fear that actually is underneath why we naturally go to this place of anxiety, of adrenaline, of all this stuff. It's because fear speaks to what we fear most, which is death and the dissolution of what is good and right in our lives. Again, Cry of the Soul is helpful here. They note that we fear physical and personal death. We fear dissolution, fragmentation, coming apart at the seams, not being. We feel fear whenever death, the dissolution of order and coherence, plunges us into the dark unknown. We don't know what's happening. We feel the loss of control. Things feel out of control. And naturally, we begin to experience and if we, were able, if we were able to go around the room this morning and you could just answer the question, what makes you afraid? We would get a whole variety of answers. 
from our experiences and encounters that cause us to feel this reality of the dissolution of things, that cause us to feel the fear of death. So how do we actually in our lives deal with fear? Because I can tell you what's not helpful when you're facing fear. It's not helpful when someone comes along and says, hey, don't be afraid. I mean, I try that with my kids when they get scared. I'm like, hey, it's fine. It's going to be fine. Don't be scared. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work for us either when we face those moments. To simply be told, don't be afraid, doesn't seem very helpful. Well, this morning, I want to look at a passage where Jesus and his disciples engaged a moment of fear. We're in this series that we've called Thy Kingdom Come, where we've been looking and studying through three chapters in the Gospel of Mark that help us see the reality of Jesus as king and the kingdom that he's bringing. And this moment, this morning, we're looking at a passage, you've heard Pastor Joel read it before, where Jesus encountered that anxiety-inducing, raise-your-adrenaline-level moment of fear with his followers. And I think as we dig into this text, it's actually going to help us begin to see how we can deal with those moments where we face fear in our life. And it's not by looking to his disciples, but actually seeing how Jesus responds to this moment. So let's kind of jump into this passage. We'll unpack some things together, and I, I want you to see some things this morning. So we're in Mark 4. We're picking it up in verse 35. It begins, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him, or he took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So set the scene, right? Jesus, we just picked up, Jesus had just spent the entire day teaching the crowds in parables, many parables, right? He had actually gone out, if you remember, onto a boat a little offshore, and he was projecting onto the land, and he had been teaching all day. And suddenly the evening comes, and Mark notes on that same day, and Jesus says, all right, we're going to go across this lake. It's actually called the Sea of Galilee, but it's actually a huge lake, seven miles across. We're going to go across this lake to the other side. So they take the very boat that he's in, and they begin to make their way as evening comes across this massive lake. But as they do that, they suddenly encounter a problem. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So as they're making their way across this lake in the night, they suddenly face this massive storm. Now, this actually isn't super uncommon in the Sea of Galilee. So let, let me help you understand why. So let me show you a picture of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. So the Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded on almost all its side by giant hills. It's actually in a part of, uh, a part of the area called the Jordan Rift. And because of where it sits... The kind of cool air from the hills will often mix with the warm air from the water, and it actually can cause very sudden and very violent storms to kind of arise out of nowhere. Now, remember, this is first century. They're not dealing with radar and weather apps. So they set out kind of hopeful, and all of a sudden this happens, right? There's the right mix, and the storm comes, and we note that the storm is violent. The text actually note that it's a great windstorm. There's an emphasis put on the violence of the windstorm. And the waves begin to crash over the side of the boat. Now, they didn't have big boats back then. They had decent-sized boats. It was not big. They actually found one of the fishing boats from the first century in 1986. They dug it up. And you can see an, an image of it. So this is kind of the remnants of it. They actually developed a model out of it that I'll show you. 
And so you can see, it's kind of a smaller boat, probably held the disciples and a few others. That's why there were many of them. Jesus is in this boat. And you can see how the waves, if there's a violent storm, the waves are starting to come in. And it's starting to fill. Which means the boat's starting to stink and they're trying to struggle. And they're in the middle of the lake in a storm. And this is pre-life jackets. Like, I don't care how strong a swimmer you are. You're not making it four miles to shore. So there's a natural, all of a sudden, fear-inducing moment. A threat to their life. A loss of control. And how does Jesus respond to this moment? Well, it says, verse 38, but, note the contrast, he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Asleep. So Jesus' response, like life-threatening storm, wind waves, he's passed out in the boat. You're like, how is Jesus asleep here? Well, I think there's two realities, actually, of why Jesus is asleep. One, he's physically exhausted. That's true. He'd been teaching all day, spending time teaching, showing parables. And when you teach, let me just tell you from experience, when you teach, you get a massive adrenaline rush in your brain. Because you're up here creating all the words on the spot, trying to talk, connect. You're taking in lots of input. And when, because of that, when you're done teaching, there's a natural adrenaline crash. So let me tell you, there's no nap like I take on Sunday mornings at 2 p.m. Or Sunday afternoons at 2 p.m. Like I am dead to the world. So I get it. Jesus is exhausted. Jesus was fully human. He didn't use his divinity as something to be held on to. He experienced tiredness. He experienced exhaustion. But I think Jesus is also calm and asleep for another reason. Because he's spiritually at rest. His response in this moment isn't actually to freak out. But he's able to keep an inner peace that allows him to sleep when fear creeps in. The Old Testament actually makes a lot of connections about the place of trust and sleep. For instance, Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. So Jesus is physically asleep, but he also has an internal spiritual reality that in the midst of fear, he's able to maintain peace. And in fact, you'll see throughout the passage, he never freaks out in this moment. Life-threatening, middle of the lake, potential drowning, Jesus never freaks out. How? Well, Jesus seems to have the sort of trust in the presence and power of God that when his external circumstances are raging, his internal reality is unfazed. He remains calm. He has an inner peace. Though the pressure mounts, he's unfazed. You say, well, how does that happen? We're always amazed by people who, when the pressure comes, seem to be able to just maintain that steady internal reality. I'm reminded of that every fall when I watch football. Because I think one of the most anxiety-inducing moments in a football game is watching kickers have to kick. Right? Like the guy's got to stand on the sideline for half the game. Suddenly, there's 10 seconds left. They got to come out and from 45 yards away try to kick a ball through like a small. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. It's actually really hard to win the game. And there seems to be these people, specific kickers, who seem to have the ability to just do that, to maintain this, like where you'd be freaking out. They're able to attain that internal consistency to kind of execute in the pressure. 
I read an article on the reality of NFL kickers, and they interviewed some of the greatest kickers in history about how they're able to maintain some of that. And one, one of the things they said over and over and over again is that it comes with their practice, their rehearsal. They actually try to cultivate and mentally engage the pressure that they will face so that they're able to maintain calm. In this article that was on CBS, they actually interviewed Morton Anderson, who's one of the greatest kickers in NFL history, about a specific kick he made for the New Orleans Saints to win the game. And as they were interviewing, they, the interviewer asked him the question, did you feel fear when you walked out? Right? External circumstances are high. This is to win the game. Fans are going crazy. Game's on the line. Do you actually feel fear? And Morton Anderson had an interesting note. He said, no, because he would mentally rehearse being in that situation three or four times the night before in the hotel room. So he would already rehearsing what he would feel, what the experience would be like before he ever walked out there. And then he, he says this, I love this. He says, I remember standing on the sideline and all my teammates were on their knees. They were holding hands and I thought to myself, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, they're not driving the car, I'm driving the car. They're freaking out, but he had that internal reality and peace. How? Because he had prepared himself. See, I think one of the things we see in the life of Jesus is the reminder that the life you live in the calm determines the response you have in the storm. I'll say that again, just in case you didn't catch it the first time. The life you live in the calm determines the response you have in the storm. We see that Jesus cultivated a life of trust in the presence and power of God. Constantly, he would remove himself in silence and solitude to be with the Father. He would constantly walk in his life through prayer, attentive to what the Father was doing. So much so that he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Right? He had this internal cultivation of the power and presence of God in his life so much that when the storm comes, his inner world isn't in turmoil. He knows who's in control. He knows who's driving the boat. He knows that reality. And so he's at peace. He's calm. He's unfazed. Now that's good news for you and I because the reality is Jesus gives us the ability to actually draw close to him in the storms and reality of our life. The part of what we do in our own discipleship is actually to cultivate being with Jesus. So that when we face storms, when we face threats, when we face the moments where life is out of control, we actually have someone to connect with and draw upon to experience that peace. That's why the Apostle Paul would write to the church in Philippi, and he would say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then, catch this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, don't miss the last phrase, in Christ Jesus. So are you facing storms that cause your anxiety to rise? Are you facing moments in life where fear creeps in? Well, Paul's clear. There's a peace available to you that actually surpasses your understanding, that will actually guard your heart and mind so that fear doesn't have to take control. But that comes in Christ. It comes in drawing close to him. And so a life of peace that Jesus models here is actually starts with cultivating a life with Jesus. You will struggle to muster up peace in the storms of life if you don't spend time cultivating closeness to Jesus when life is calm. 
And so Jesus shows us that he's able to remain calm and peaceful because he cultivates a life of the presence and power of God. Do you take time in your life to cultivate that? Do you spend time with Jesus, drawing upon his peace? Because friends, let me tell you, when the storm comes, you're going to want that. You're going to know, want to know how to connect with Jesus because it will give you that peace that you're looking for. And you can practice that right now. The second thing that we see then from Jesus is not only does he remain calm and at peace, but he actually responds to the storm in a very significant way. So look at verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I probably read that a little bit too soft than what they would have stated. Right? I imagine the disciples, they're wigged out at this point. They think they're going to drown. And they come to Jesus and they're like shaking him like, hey, rabbi, like, do you not care? Do you not see what's going on out here? Wake up. What's interesting about the disciples is I think in their fear, they actually ask the key question that underlies all of our fear. God, do you not care? Do you not care what's going on in my life? You see, the reality is, Remember, fear comes when we lose control. And when we begin to lose control, that leaves us with the feeling that the worst possible outcome is what's going to happen. And when that takes place, our natural feeling is God doesn't care. He doesn't care. I mean, if you think about the moments in your life where you face that genuine place of fear, I guarantee that that question was close at hand. God, are you asleep? Did you forget about me? Why would you let this happen? Like you, you, you intervened in this situation. Why aren't you showing up over here? I saw healing in this place. Why am I not seeing it where I'm at? You calm that storm. How about you show up and calm this one? Right? The natural question is, God, if you cared, then you wouldn't be, you wouldn't let this happen. And that's what the disciples think. Jesus, do you not care? You're going to remain asleep in the boat? Don't confuse. Don't confuse the storms of life for God's indifference. That's the mistakes the disciples make here. They think Jesus is indifferent. He's not. He might actually have purposes that you don't see. So we see their fear, but then we see Jesus' response. And catch the flow. Because I want you to see kind of how the text connects here. Mark makes the note that there's two threats to the disciples' reality. The wind and the waves of the sea. Right? Those are the two things coming at that are causing the threat. Jesus awakes, verse 39, and what does it say? He rebukes the wind and speaks to the sea. So Jesus addresses the direct threat to them. And as he does, he speaks two commands very clearly. Peace and be still. Now, those are interesting commands. The first command, what we translate peace, is really the idea of silence, right? It, it's like, be quiet, be silent. So Jesus speaks this to the raging wind. And the second command, which he says, which is be stilled, is really the idea, you could think of it almost like um, be muzzled, like the way you would muzzle a wild animal. It's, it's that idea. It's like, get control of yourself. 
or really come under control. Be muzzled is the idea. Now, this is actually really interesting because Jesus has used this same exact command before in the Gospel of Mark. He uses it in Mark 1.25, and he uses it in speaking to a demon. He tells the demon to be muzzled. And he says the same thing here to the sea. Now, now why is that significant? Well, in Jewish thought, the sea is the place of chaos and sin and brokenness and the forces of evil that stand against God's world. It is the symbolic reality for evil that's present within our world in the Jewish mind. This is why in some of the great prophetic literature like Daniel chapter 7, where you have beasts that rise up that come against God's creation. Where do those beasts come from? They come from the sea, right? John will pick up that same imagery in the book of Revelation that we looked at earlier this summer. This is why when God sets the new heavens and the new earth, his eternal kingdom, where shalom and flourishing are, it makes the note in Revelation that there's no more sea. That doesn't mean there's no more ocean. So if you like surfing, don't worry. I think that'll be a new creation. What it means is that evil's been dealt with. The sea is the symbol of evil. So yes, it's a physical reality, but in the Jewish mindset, it also inhabits the spiritual reality and forces of evil that come against God's world. And so Jesus speaks to that reality and says, be still. And what happens? Verse 39, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Note again the emphasis, right? The word great is used twice in this passage. There was a great storm. Jesus speaks And now there's a great calm. And so what we reminded is that the way Jesus responds to the life-threatening, anxiety-inducing, fearful moments is he speaks with authority. That's what all of this highlights. It highlights his authority, that Jesus is the one who reigns over creation and has all authority. If you speak and something immediately obeys you, That speaks to the authority with which you carry. A great illustration of this is the military. Any of you that have served in the military or have friends or family or loved ones who have served, you know that the authority with which you speak requires the obedience of the soldiers below you. The higher the authority, I mean, hopefully the more immediate the obedience. There should always be obedience, right? But the immediate obedience speaks to the authority that Jesus carries. And so Jesus speaks, and what happens? Creation obeys. The forces of nature are under his control. They respond. He reigns. He is the Lord over creation. I think one thing that's significant in this text, if you're a good Jewish reader and you're reading this, what you immediately are going to think of is you're going to think of another story in the Old Testament scriptures that speak to someone being on a boat in a storm. It's the story of Jonah. And there's a lot of similarities to Jonah's story and what happens here with Jesus, right? Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh to proclaim his word to them. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, so he flees to Tarshish, the opposite direction. He gets on a boat to sail across the Mediterranean to there. In that, a storm suddenly arises on the Mediterranean that threatens the very life of the boat and the sailors that Jonah's with. But Jonah's asleep in the boat. And so the sailors come to Jonah and they're like, hey, you got to do something about this or or else we're all going to die here. 
And so Jonah recognizes that it's because of his disobedience that this storm is coming. So he tells the sailors, throw me over the side. I'll move that. Just kill me. And then God will get rid of this storm. They say, no, there's a wrestling match. Finally, they relent. They say, God, don't hold this against us. They throw Jonah over the side. Immediately, the storm stops. Now, contrast that reality with Jesus. Does Jesus have a wrestling match here? Does Jesus stop and say, God, what do you want me to do? Can, can you help me understand? Does Jesus say, hey, throw me over the... No, he just gets up and says, peace, enough, stop. And immediately creation responds. So what he's trying to show you is that someone greater than Jonah is here. And that Jesus actually is, in fact, the one who carries the very authority of God himself. Another passage that Mark's Jewish audience would have immediately thought of is Psalm 107 where we see the reality of God's power over creation. It almost sounds like a poem about this very interaction. It says in Psalm 107, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And so, if Yahweh is the one who ultimately has control over the winds and the storm, and he speaks and it's still, and Jesus stands up and does the same thing, the connection's immediate in their mind. We're not just dealing with your average man right here. We're dealing with the Lord himself. And this, in the moment, reveals the reality and authority of Jesus, that he is, in fact, the divine son of God. Yes, he is fully human, but he is also fully God. And he carries that authority such that creation itself obeys him. And it reveals in this moment who's actually in control. Right? Remember, fear ask, causes us to ask the question, who's in control here? When fear comes, we don't have control. So we naturally start to look to say, who's in control? And we look to God and say, if you're in control, why is this happening? And what scripture reminds us from front to back is there is someone who's in control. It is God. He is sovereign. He is over all things and all circumstances. And every single moment of your life, storm or not, God is sovereign over all of it. He is absolutely in control. And Jesus is the divine son. He is in control of creation. So you don't have to question who's in control. It's revealed who's in control. Now, you might ask the question, then why let them go through the storm? Right? Because Jesus is the one who, who said, let's go to the other side. He could have said, hey, guys, why don't we take a nap? Let's recover. How about in the morning we set out? We'll figure it out. He could have said, well, let's hike around and we'll stop along the way. So why lead them into the storm? Well, ultimately, the storm is going to reveal to the disciples the reality of who he is. It's going to lead them into the deeper transformation of what it looks like to follow him. But the problem is, you have to realize, they don't know that yet. They're just in the middle of the storm. They're just on a boat, thinking their life is over, wondering what God is up to. Jesus shows them that ultimately he's the one in control. And that if he's the one in control, he's got this. He'll bring them to the other side. Because he has that authority. 
See, when you face the storms of life, you don't always get to see what's coming on the other side. You don't always get to see the purposes of God. You might not even understand that until we get to eternity. And Jesus never promised that we wouldn't face storms in life. In fact, he promised the exact opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. You're going to face it. So don't think any of us escape finding those moments of the storm. But he promised that he would work through those storms for his ultimate purposes. This is why Paul would tell the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5 that your suffering now is bearing for you an eternal weight of glory to come. That God is doing something now in your suffering to ultimately bring about his purposes for his glory and your good. Therefore, if he's in control and he has purposes, we can trust him. Those are our options. You can either trust God in the storms of your life, understanding that he might have purposes that you don't understand, or you can abandon him altogether. There's not a middle ground. That, that's the reality of storms and trials. They don't leave us in neutral. We either lean into trust or we lean away from it. And that's the option that's put before us. I think one of the great pictures of this um, I read recently was in a book called The Attentive Life by Leighton Ford. Leighton Ford was a contemporary of Billy Graham. He worked with him, traveled around, evangelist, pastor, preacher. And Leighton Ford and his, his wife faced one of those storms in life that, that no one, especially no parent, would ever want to face, which was the loss of one of their sons. Uh, he had a medical condition. He went into surgery. They were hoping to fix it during surgery. He didn't end up making and ended up passing away. And Leighton Fort notes in his book how that brought him to that question of, God, where are you at? Like, do, do you care? And he writes this. He said, for me, the death of our son was one of those times when God does not seem to be paying attention. Yet on the long drive home from that hospital, my wife Jeannie, sitting beside me, with a drawn and ravaged face said simply, either there is a God and he is good or there is no God at all. It is just a stark a choice as that. Either, either there is a God and he's in control and he's good and he's got purposes that you don't understand or he's not. Or suffering is random and meaningless. You, you can't play the middle. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, makes a similar point Reflecting on this passage, he said, if you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, then you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Right. Either God is sovereign and great and above our thinking and understanding, and he's in control and has purposes, or he's not there. So why even bother being mad at him? Why ask the question, God, do you care, if he's not actually in control in the first place? See, we betray our own logic. We get mad at God for the suffering we face, not actually reflecting on the reality that it's way worse to consider the fact that there couldn't be a God or a meaning to what we have anyway. This is why I think atheism is the dumbest idea in the world. If suffering is meaningless, what's the point? If your suffering isn't, if there isn't a God who's able to work redemption in your suffering for a greater glory, then why suffer? Why endure? Why go through it? To not have Jesus in control in the midst of the storm is an even worse reality because that means suffering is random. But if he is in control, if he does have authority, then he has purposes in it that you might not understand now 
but he's promised he'll work through to bring you to the other side. He can speak over the circumstances of your life if and when he wants. But the good news for all of us is that he's ultimately spoken over the worst circumstance of our life, which is the reality of death. Because he already conquered that. Yes, Jonah offered himself as a sacrifice ultimately out of his disobedience. But it reminds us that Jesus, though he doesn't offer himself as a sacrifice here, it reveals his authority, would ultimately offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross. Not out of his disobedience, but out of his obedience. And although he was the perfect son, obedient to the father in all aspects, he would still experience the moment of fear and rejection where he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he wouldn't abandon God in that moment. He would remain there. And he would experience the forsakenness of God so that you might experience the eternal acceptance of God. And then three days later, he would come from out of that grave to announce that he has conquered Satan. He has conquered the forces of evil. And he has conquered death itself. This is why when John would meet Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, he would fall down as though dead. And Jesus would remind him in that moment, fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forever and I have the keys of death and Hades. If Jesus has all authority, if he's given himself as in a sacrifice for our sins and he's come out on the other side of death, defeating and conquering such that he holds his keys, then the reality is that we don't have to be afraid. He has the authority and we can trust him. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to. To trust him in the face of the fear that we face. Look what he says in verse 40. He said to them, there's this great calm, and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You gotta love Jesus, right? Like, I mean... These, these guys are like on the verge of thinking they're going to die. Jesus brings the calm, and you would think the next thing he'd say is like, hey, it's okay, guys. I got this. Don't worry. No, he immediately challenges them. If you have a Jesus that doesn't challenge you, you're not following the right Jesus. If he only says nice things to you, you might be following someone, but it's not Jesus. And so he comes and he says, guys, have you not been paying attention? Did you not see me cast out the demons? Did you not see me unveil and heal people who are sick? You don't think I'm in control here? I'm in control. So why do you still not have faith? And if you have faith, then why are you afraid? Right? Jesus makes the connection between faith and how it affects our fear. That there should be something in trusting him that influences the way in which we fear the life-threatening situations that we might face. Now, he's gracious, right? Like, he doesn't say, okay, you don't have faith, I'm out, peace, you guys suck, I'm done with you. Thankfully, he doesn't say that to us either. Thankfully, in the face of our own discipleship failure, Jesus doesn't give up on us. He invites us towards that deeper place of faith. So if you're here this morning and you're in that struggle, amen, join the crowd. We're all in that. Jesus is gracious with us. And what he's trying to come and say is, hey, come on, come on. I'm going to challenge you. I'm not going to leave you where you're at, but I'm not going to abandon you either. I'm going to invite you in the path. 
So why are you still afraid? Have you no faith? And then I think what we see in the passage is actually the antidote to fear all along. Because what happens to the disciples as Jesus does this and then challenges them? Verse 41 is the key here. It says this, and they were filled with, catch the word. What's it say? A great fear. A great, literally, if you translate it, you could say they feared a great fear. That would be the literal translation. So we have three greats in the passage. There was a great storm. There was a great calm because of Jesus' authority, and that resulted in a great fear. And ultimately, they asked the question, who is this that the wind and the waves would obey him? You see, to truly realize the authority of Jesus is to be filled with an even greater fear than the fear of our circumstances. It's to stand in awe at his power. And so the disciples recognize if he can speak and creation obeys, we're dealing with someone who has ultimate authority, someone beyond our reality. And they're in awe. They make the connection. And in this moment, they're awestruck by Jesus. If you've never stood awestruck at the power of Jesus and the authority is have, again, then I don't know if it's the real Jesus you're following. It's so easy to fashion him in our image. It's so easy to buy into this idea that Jesus is just a meek, gentle, nice guy who only says pithy, nice statements. The passage is clear. He is Lord, period. He rules and reigns over creation, period. He assumes all authority, all power, equal with the Father in divinity and essence. He says the word and creation obeys him. And if you've never stood, bowed knee before that sort of power, then you're not following the real Jesus. And you say, what about his gentleness and lowliness? What about his meekness and care? Yes, that's only contrasted and experienced in reality to the awestruck nature of his authority. What makes his love and his meekness and his mildness toward us so compelling is not that he doesn't have authority, it's that he does. And because he has that authority, that then transforms the reality of our lives and how we can engage our circumstances. Because if you truly see Jesus in his authority and you truly recognize the reality of what he's done for us in the gospel, it leaves you in this beautiful place of being awestruck at his majesty and awestruck at his love. And if that's the case, what you will come to do is have a greater awe for the power of God in your life than you will fear the circumstances that you face. You see, the way the circumstances of your life is transformed, the way you don't encounter fear is not by not being afraid. It's by having a greater fear in the power of God than you do the circumstances of your life. If you have that sort of fear, if you are able to stand before our God and recognize his awesome, then what in life do you need to be afraid of? Have we forgotten how powerful he is? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. Isn't he? And that should strike the very depth of our soul so that when we come to face the moments of fear, it's transformed because we have a greater awe for our 
God. You see, fear distorts our reality. Fear causes us to see the things in life in the wrong contrast. You see, when you're afraid, what the devil wants to come and do is he wants to make you think that evil is ultimate and God is not. He wants to make you think the end of the story is the circumstance that you're going through. And there isn't another ending. And when you're faced with fear, you will be tempted in that moment to make God small and your problems big. But faith, faith makes God big. Faith recognizes the power of God. Faith recognizes the otherness of God. Faith recognizes the significant, radical love of a God that would willfully sacrifice his son to his own wrath so that you wouldn't have to face it. That's an otherness kind of love. That's not a love you will find on this earth. And when you see that kind of love, you stand in awe and suddenly God becomes big and your problems become small. So faith is embracing the power and the reality of God. The way that we get transformed from a people of fear to a people of faith is not by diminishing the power of Christ, by not turning him into some weak, mild man or savior, but instead to see his incredible authority in, reflected, in reflection of his incredible love and to stand in awe before him. Because that's the sort of God he is. I think no one captures this better, and I'll close this with this before we sing. I think no one captures this better, maybe for a moment, than C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that book, Narnia, which is the mythical land, is under the curse of the white rich. It's under the forces of chaos. And the children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, all come into Narnia, but there's one moment where... Peter, Susan, and Lucy come in after their brother, and they're gathered, they're, they're met by the beavers, and they're brought into Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's home. And they're beginning to describe the reality of why Narnia is under this curse. But they begin to talk about the one who can save Narnia, Aslan. And they begin to describe Aslan. And as they do, they make the note that he's the lion, the great lion. And Susan responds in the story. She says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. I think I'd be nervous meeting a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver has the best response. He says, have you been listening to what Mrs. Beaver said? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When you're dealing with Jesus Christ, you're not dealing with someone who's safe. You're dealing with an awe-inspiring God and Lord over all things. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And no matter what you're facing in life, you can trust him because he has authority over that too. And we invite you to do that today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that you are a great God. And not only are you great, you've shown us your love in Christ Jesus that we can be awed at your majesty, but also know the depth of your covenant commitment to us. That we can know, no matter what we face, God, the good news that you will bring us to the other side. Maybe not in this life, but in the eternal life that you offer us in Jesus. 
So would you help us, Lord, to cultivate faith in our lives in the fearful circumstances that we face? Even now, as we just prepare to respond, would you use this moment for us as a church family to be reminded of the victory and to lean into the reality of faith to help us see you in your greatness that our problems would lessen in our eyes and we would see your power over them. And would that lead us to be, help us to be willing to follow you no matter where you might lead us in life. So remind us of the gospel now, God. Remind us of your victory. Do your work, we ask. Even now as we sing, we ask all this in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.